Good morning. Welcome to With God at Dawn. Today we're studying Pergamos. Pergamos, Pergamos, however you pronounce that. And um, we have a little bit more to talk about with Pergamos, don't we? Let's ask the Lord to guide us. Dear Jesus, please help us to understand what is the doctrine of Balaam. Help us to get it and see if we have any of that in our life that we need to release to you. I pray for those who are here with me today that you would guide them in case I say something confusing. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So the time of Pergamos was from 323 A.D. through 538 A.D. The meaning of Pergamos is height or elevation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This is Jesus' prophecy of Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, Write these things, saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against thee with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saying, Being he that receiveth it. It's a wonderful promise. We all look forward to getting a white stone with a new name in it. Remember when Jacob's name changed from, um, from what it once was to a new meaning. It was lovely, but... Uh, Let's not distract here today. So the leading sin of Pergamos was holding the doctrine of Balaam. There's a brief study of the doctrine and character of Balaam in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 438 through 452, and we're going to read that. But Pergamos was true to God in the beginning, weren't they? So let's read about the doctrine of Balaam. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 438. Returning to the Jordan from the conquest of Bashan, the Israelites, in preparation for the immediate invasion of Canaan, they encamped beside the river above its entrance into the Dead Sea, and just opposite the plain of Jericho. They were upon the very borders of Moab, and the Moabites were filled with terror at the close proximity of the invaders. The people of Moab had not been molested by Israel. Yet they had watched with troubled forebodings all that had taken place in the surrounding countries. The Amorites, before whom they had been forced to retreat, had been conquered by the Hebrews. And the territory which the Amorites had wrested from Moab was now in the possession of Israel. The hosts of Bashan had yielded before the mysterious power that was enshrouded in that cloudy pillar. And the giant strongholds were occupied by the Hebrews. The Moabites dared not risk an attack upon them. An appeal to arms was hopeless in face of the supernatural agencies that wrought in their behalf. 
But they determined, as Pharaoh had done, to enlist the power of sorcery to counteract the work of God. They would bring a curse upon Israel. The people of Moab were closely connected with the Midianites, both by the ties of nationality and religion. And Balak, the king of Moab, aroused the fears of the kindred people and secured their cooperation in his designs against Israel. By this message, Now shall this company lick up all that are around about us as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. Balaam was an inhabitant of Mesopotamia. He was reported to possess supernatural powers, and his fame had reached to the land of Moab. He was determined to call on him to their aid. Accordingly, messengers of the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian, they were sent to secure his divinations and enchantments against Israel. The ambassadors at once set out on there was a long journey over the mountains, across the deserts to Mesopotamia, and upon finding Balaam, they delivered to him the message of their king. Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth. They abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I wot that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. Balaam was once a good man and a prophet of God, but he had apostatized and had given himself up to covetousness, yet he still professed to be a servant of the Most High. He was not ignorant of God's work in behalf of Israel. And when the messengers announced their errand, he well knew that it was his duty to refuse the rewards of Balak and to dismiss the ambassadors. But he ventured to dally with temptation, and he urged the messengers to tarry with him that night, declaring he could give no decided answer till he had asked counsel of the Lord. Balaam knew that his curse could not harm Israel. God was on their side, and as long as they were true to him, oh, remember that if someone curses you, it can't hurt you if you're on the Lord's side. No adverse power of earth or hell could prevail against them if they were, if, as long as he was true to God. His pride was flattered by the words of the ambassadors. He whom thou blessed is blessed, blesses is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. The bribe of costly gifts and prospective exultation excited his covetousness. He greedily accepted the offered treasures, and then while professing strict obedience to the will of God, he tried to comply with the desires of Balak can't play it both ways, can you? There is no middle ground. In the morning, Balaam reluctantly dismissed the messengers, but he did not tell them what the Lord had said. Angry that his visions of gain and honor had been suddenly dispelled, he petulantly exclaimed, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. The sin of covetousness, which God declares to be idolatry, had made him a time-server and through this one fault, Satan gained entire control of him. It was this that caused his ruin. The tempter is ever presenting worldly gain and honor to entice men from the service of God. He tells them it's their over-conscientiousness that keeps them from prosperity. Thus, well, true prosperity only comes from God, doesn't it? Thus we get deceived. But thus many are induced to venture out of the path of strict integrity. One wrong step makes the next easier, and they become more and more presumptuous. 
They will do and dare most terrible things when once they have given themselves to the control of avarice and a desire for power. Many flatter themselves that they can depart from strict integrity for a time for the sake of some worldly advantage, and that, having gained their object, they can change their course when they please. Ooh, such are entangling themselves in the snare of Satan, and it's seldom that they escape. When the messengers reported to Balak the prophet's refusal to accompany them, they did not intimate that God had forbidden him. Supposing that Balaam's delay was merely to secure a richer reward, the king sent princes more in number and more honorable than the first with promises of higher honors and with authority to concede to any terms that Balaam might demand. Balak's urgent message to the prophet was, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me, for I will promote thee unto very great honor. I'll do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. Second time Balaam was tested. In response to the solicitation of the ambassadors, he professed great conscientiousness and integrity, assuring them that no amount of gold and silver could induce him to go contrary to the will of God, but he longed to comply with the king's request. And although the will of God had already been definitely made known to him, he urged the messengers to tarry that he might further inquire of God as though the infinite were a man to be persuaded. In the night season the Lord appeared unto Balaam and said, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. Well, thus for the Lord would, thus far the Lord would permit Balaam to follow his own will, because he was determined upon it. He did not seek to do the will of God, but chose his own course, and then endeavored to secure the sanction of the Lord. <laughs> there are thousands at the present day who are pursuing a similar course. They would have no difficulty in understanding their duty if it were in harmony with their inclination. <laughs> it's plainly set before them in the Bible or is clearly indicated by circumstances and reason, but because these evidences are contrary to their desires and inclinations, they frequently set them aside and presume to go to God to learn their duty. With, with great apparent conscientiousness, they pray long and earnestly for light, but God will not be trifled with. He often permits such persons to follow their own desires and to suffer the result. My people would not hearken to my voice, so I gave them up unto their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. That's found in Psalms 81, 11, and 12. When one clearly sees a duty, let him not presume to go to God with the prayer that he may be excused from performing it. He should rather, with a humble, submissive spirit, ask for divine strength and wisdom to meet its claims. The Moabites were a degraded, idolatrous people, yet, according to the light which they had received, their guilt was not so great in the sight of heaven as was that of Balaam, as he professed to be God's prophet. However, all he should say would be supposed to be uttered by divine authority. Hence, he was not to be permitted to speak as he chose, but must deliver the message which God should give him. The word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do, was the divine command. Balaam had received permission to go with the messengers from Moab if they came in the morning to call him. But annoyed at his delay and expecting another refusal, they set out on their homeward journey without further consultation with him. Every excuse for complying with the request of Balak 
had now been removed. But Balaam was determined to secure the reward, and taking the beast upon which he was accustomed to ride, he set out on the journey. He feared that even now the divine permission might be withdrawn, and he pressed eagerly forward. <laughs> he, he, he is going against God's will already, because God said, if they come to you, you may go with them. But they didn't come to him, did they? And so now he's just going to try to force it to happen. My goodness. Um, he pressed eagerly forward and impatient lest he should by some means fail to gain this coveted reward. But the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. The animal saw the divine messenger who was unperceived by the man and turned aside from the highway into a field. With cruel blows, Balaam brought the beast back into the path. But again in a narrow place, shut in by walls, the angel appeared, and the animal, trying to avoid the menacing figure, crushed her master's foot against the wall. Balaam was blinded to the heavenly interposition, and he knew not that God was obstructing his path. The man became exasperated and beating the ass unmercifully, he forced it to proceed. Again in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left, the angel appeared as before in a threatening attitude, and the poor beast, trembling with terror, made a full stop and fell to the earth under its rider. Balaam's rage was unbounded, and with his staff he smote the animal more cruelly than before. God now opened its mouth, and by the dumb ass speaking with a man's voice, he forbade the madness of the prophet. What have I done unto thee? It said, Thou hast smitten me these three times. Furious at being hindered in his journey, Balaam answered the beast as he would have addressed an intelligent being. Because thou hast mocked me, I would where there were a sword in mine hand, for now would I kill thee. Here was a professed magician on his way to pronounce a curse upon a whole people with the intent to paralyze his strength while he had not power even to slay the animal upon which he rode. The eyes of Balaam were now opened, and he beheld the angel of God standing with drawn sword, ready to slay him. In terror, he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. The, anim the angel said to him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. And the ass saw me and turned from me these three times. Unless she had turned from me, surely now also I had slain thee and saved her alive. Balaam owed the preservation of his life to the poor animal that he had treated so cruelly. The man who claimed to be a prophet of the Lord, who declared that his eyes were open, and he saw the vision of the Almighty, was so blinded by covetousness and ambition, he could not discern the angel of God visible to his beast. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. How many are thus blinded? They rush on, forbidden paths, transgressing the divine law, cannot discern that God and his angels are against them. Like Balaam, they're angry at those who would prevent their ruin. Balaam had given evidence of the spirit that controlled him by his treatment of his beast. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. That's Proverbs 12.10. Few realize, as they should, the sinfulness of abusing animals or leaving them to suffer from neglect. He who created man made the lower animals also. His tender mercies are over all his works. The animals were created to serve man, but he has no right to cause them pain. 
by harsh treatment or cruel exaction. Because of man's sin, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together. Suffering and death were thus entailed not only upon the human race, but upon the animals. Surely then it becomes man to seek to lighten instead of increasing the weight of suffering which his transgression has brought upon God's creatures. He who will abuse animals because he has them in his power is both a coward and a tyrant, a disposition to cause pain, whether to our fellow men or to the brute creation, satanic. Many do not realize their cruelty will ever be known because the poor dumb animals cannot reveal it. But could the eyes of these men be opened? As for those of Balaam, they would see an angel of God standing as a witness to testify against them in the courts above. A record goes up to heaven. A day is coming when judgment will be pronounced against those who abuse God's creatures. When he beheld this messenger of God, Balaam exclaimed in terror, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodst in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displease thee, I will get me back again. The Lord suffered him to proceed on his journey, but he gave him to understand that his words should be controlled by divine power. God would give evidence to Moab that the Hebrews were under the guardianship of heaven, and this he did effectually when he showed them how powerless Balaam was, even to utter a curse against them without divine permission. The king of Moab, being informed of the approach of Balaam, went out with a large retinue to the borders of his kingdom to receive him. When he expressed his astonishment at Balaam's delay, in view of the rich rewards awaiting him, the prophet answer was low. I am come unto thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that shall I speak. Balaam greatly regretted this restriction. He feared that his purpose could not be carried out because the Lord's controlling power was upon him. With great pomp, the king with the chief dignitaries of his kingdom escorted Balaam to the high places of Baal, from which he could survey the Hebrew host. Behold, the prophet as he stands upon the lofty height looking down over the encampment of God's chosen people. How little do the Israelites know of what's taking place so near them? How little do they know of the care of God extended over them by day and by night? How dull are the perceptions of God's people? How slow are they in every age to comprehend his great love and mercy? If they could discern the wonderful power of God constantly exerted in their behalf, would not their hearts be filled with gratitude for his love and with awe at the thought of his majesty and power? Balaam had some knowledge of the sacrificial offerings of the Hebrews, and he hoped that by surpassing them in costly gifts, he might secure the blessing of God and ensure the accomplishment of his sinful projects. Oh, did you catch that? Balaam had a little knowledge of the sacrifices that Israel was offering, the lambs and such, and in his mind because he was a covetous individual it sounds like it's saying that he thought that he would offer more costly sacrifices and that he would get god's um blessing that way which but god is not like men is he oh man thus the sentiments of the idolatrous moabites were gaining control of his mind his wisdom had become foolishness his spiritual vision was beclouded he had brought blindness upon himself by yielding to the power of Satan. By Balaam's direction, seven altars were erected, and he offered a sacrifice upon each. He then withdrew to a high place to meet with God. 
promising to make known to Balak whatever the Lord should reveal. With the nobles and princes of Moab, the king stood beside the sacrifice, while around them gathered the eager multitude watching for the return of the prophet. He came at last, and the people waited for the words that should paralyze forever that strange power exerted in behalf of the hated Israelites. Balaam said, The king of Moab had brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the tops of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Balaam confessed that he came with a purpose of cursing Israel, but the words he uttered were directly contrary to the sentiments of his heart. He was constrained to pronounce blessings while his soul was filled with curses. As Balaam looked upon the encampment of Israel, he beheld with astonishment the evidence of their prosperity. They had been represented to him as a rude, disorganized multitude infesting the country and roving bands that were a pest and terror to the surrounding nations, but their appearance was the reverse of all this. He saw the vast extent and perfect arrangement of their camp, everything, bearing the marks of thorough discipline and order. He was shown the favor with which God regarded Israel, their distinctive character as his chosen people. They were not to stand upon a level with other nations, but to be exalted above them all. The people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. At the time when these words were spoken, the Israelites had no permanent settlement and their peculiar character, their manners and customs, were not familiar to Balaam. But how strikingly was this prophecy fulfilled in the after-history of Israel. Through all the years of their captivity, through all the ages since they were dispersed among the nations, they remained a distinct people. So the people of God, the true Israel, though scattered throughout all nations, are on earth but sojourners whose citizenship is in heaven. Not only was Balaam shown the history of the Hebrew people as a nation, he beheld the increase in prosperity of the true Israel of God to the close of time. You know, it says here, the true Israel of God. He saw the special favor of the Most High attending those who love and fear him. He saw them, supported by his arm as they entered the dark valley of the shadow of death. And he beheld them, coming forth from their graves, crowned with glory, honor, and immortality. That's the true Israel of God. That could be you and me if we accept Jesus. He saw the redeemed rejoicing in the unfading glories of the earth made new. Gazing upon the scene, he exclaimed, Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? And I believe what he was seeing there was God's spiritual Israel, all his children who accepted Jesus. And then we receive Abraham. We are Abraham's heirs according to the promise. And as he saw the crown of glory on every brow, the joy beaming from every countenance, and looked forward to that endless life of unalloyed happiness, he uttered the solemn prayer, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. If Balaam had had a disposition to accept the light that God had given, he would now have made true his words. He would at once have severed all connection with Moab. He would no longer have presumed upon the mercy of God but would have returned to him with deep repentance. Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness, and these he was determined to secure. Balak had confidently expected a curse that would fall like a withering blight upon Israel, 
And at the words of the prophet, he passionately exclaimed, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them altogether. Balaam, seeking to make a virtue of necessity, professed to have spoken from a conscientious regard for the will of God. The words that had been forced from his lips by divine power, his answer was, Must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? Balak could not even now relinquish his purpose. He decided that the imposing spectacle presented by the vast encampment of the Hebrews had so intimidated Balaam that he dared not practice his divinations against them. The king determined to take the prophet to some point where only a, just a small part of the host might be seen. If Balak could be induced to curse them in detached parties, the whole camp would soon be devoted to destruction. On the top of an elevation called Pisgah, another trial was made. Again, seven altars were erected, whereon were placed the same offerings as at the first. The king and his princes remained by the sacrifice, while Balaam retired to meet with God again. The prophet was entrusted with the divine message, which he was powerless to alter or withhold. When he appeared to the anxious, expectant company, the question was put to him, What has the Lord spoken? The answer, as before, struck terror to the heart of king and princes. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Hath he not said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Awed by these revelations, Balaam exclaimed, Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. The great magician had tried his power of enchantment in accordance with the desire of the Moabites, but concerning this very occasion, it should be said of Israel, What hath God wrought? While they were under the divine protection, no people or nation, though aided by all the power of Satan, should be able to prevail against them. All the world should wonder at the marvelous work of God in behalf of his people, that a man determined to pursue a sinful course should be so controlled by divine power as to utter, instead of imprecations, the richest and most precious promises in the language of sublime and impassioned poetry. The favor of God at this time manifested toward Israel was to be an assurance of his protecting care for his obedient, faithful children in all ages. When Satan should inspire evil men to misrepresent, harass, and destroy God's people, this very occurrence would be brought to their remembrance and would strengthen their courage and their faith in God. The king of Moab, disheartened and distressed, exclaimed, Well, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. Yet a faint hope still lingered in his heart, and he determined to make another trial. He now conducted Balaam to Mount Peor, where was a temple devoted to the licentious worship of Baal, their god. Here, the same number of altars were erected as before. The same number of sacrifices were offered. Balaam went not alone as at other times to learn God's will. He made no pretense of sorcery. Standing beside the altars, he looked abroad upon the tents of Israel. Again, the Spirit of God rested upon him, and the divine message came from his lips. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel! As the valleys are they spread forth as gardens by the river's side, as the trees of Lin Elos, which the Lord has planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. He couched, he lay down as a lion, as a great lion, who shall stir him up? 
Blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. The prosperity of God's people is here represented by some of the most beautiful figures to be found in nature. The prophet likens Israel to fertile valleys, covered with abundant harvest, to flourishing gardens, watered by never-failing springs, to the fragrant sandal tree and the stately cedar. The figure last mentioned is one of the most strikingly beautiful and appropriate to be found in the inspired word. The cedar of Lebanon was honored by all the people of the East. The class of trees to which it belongs is found wherever man has gone throughout the earth. From the Arctic region to the tropic zone, they flourish, rejoicing in the heat, yet braving the cold, springing in rich luxuriance by the riverside, yet towering aloft upon the parched and thirsty waste. They plant their roots deep among the rocks of the mountains and boldly stand in defiance of the tempest. Their leaves are fresh and green when all else has perished at the breath of winter. And above all other trees, the cedar of Lebanon is distinguished for its strength, its firmness, its undecaying vigor. And this is used as a symbol of those whose life is hid with Christ in God. It says this, oh, it's interesting. I like that verse, hid with Christ in God. Christ is in God and we are hid with Christ in God. That is... Colossians 3.3, that might be a really wonderful thing to study about the Spirit of God. Our life is hid. Well, okay, I'm going to move on. The divine hand has exalted the cedar as king over the forest. The fir trees were not like his boughs, and the chestnut trees were not like his branches, nor any tree in the garden of God. The cedar is repeatedly employed as an emblem of royalty. It's used in scripture to represent the righteous. It shows how heaven regards those who do the will of God. Balaam prophesied that Israel's king would be greater and more powerful than Agag. This was a name given to the kings of the Amalekites, who were at that time a very powerful nation, but Israel, if true to God, would subdue all her enemies. The king of Israel was the son of God, and his throne was one day to be established in the earth, and his power to be exalted above all earthly kingdoms. As he listened to the prophet's word, Balak was overwhelmed with disappointed hope and fear and rage. He was indignant that Balaam could have given him the least encouragement of a favorable response. When everything was determined against him, he regarded with scorn the prophet's compromising, deceptive course. The king exclaimed fiercely, Therefore now flee thou to thy place. I thought to promote thee under great honor, but lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. The answer was that the king had been forewarned that Balaam could speak only the message given him from God. Before returning to his people, Balaam uttered a most beautiful and sublime prophecy of the world's Redeemer and the final destruction of the enemies of God. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheph. And he closed by predicting the complete destruction of Moab and Edom of Amalek and the Kenites, thus leaving to the Moabitish king no ray of hope. Disappointed in his hopes of wealth and promotion, in disfavor with the king, and conscious that he had incurred the displeasure of God, Balaam returned from his self-chosen mission. After he had reached his home, the controlling power of the Spirit of God left him, and his covetousness, which he had been merely held in check, prevailed.
He was ready to resort to any means to gain the reward promised by Balak. Balaam knew that the prosperity of Israel depended upon their obedience to God. Uh, I think this is a good thing for you and me to remember. Prosperity depends on our obedience to God. That means all spiritual prosperity, physical, all econ economic, all prosperity. And that there is no way to cause their overthrow but by seducing them into sin. He now decided to secure Balak's favor by advising the Moabites of the course to be pursued to bring a curse upon Israel. He immediately returned to the land of Moab and he laid his plan before the king. The Moabites themselves were convinced that so long as Israel remained true to God, he would be their shield. The planned proposal of Balaam was to separate them from God by enticing them into idolatry. If they could be led to engage in the licentious worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, their omnipotent protector would become their enemy, and they would soon fall a prey to the fierce warlike nations around them. This plan was readily accepted by the king, and Balaam himself remained to assist in carrying it into effect. I'm feeling really sad. How easily we fall. Balaam witnessed the success of his diabolical scheme. He saw the curse of God visited upon his people, and thousands falling under his judgment. But the divine justice that punished sin in Israel did not permit the tempter to escape. In the war of Israel against the Moabites, Balaam was slain. He had felt a presentiment that his own end was near when he exclaimed, let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end by like, be like his. But he had not chosen to live the life of the righteous. His destiny was fixed with the enemies of God. The fate of Balaam, similar to that of Judas, and their characters bear a marked resemblance to each other. Both these men tried to unite the service of God and mammon and met with signal failure. Balaam acknowledged the true God and professed to serve him. Judas believed in Jesus as the Messiah and united with his followers. But Balaam hoped to make the service of Jehovah the stepping stone to the acquirement of riches and worldly honor, and failing in this, he stumbled and fell and was broken. Judas expected by his connection with Christ to secure wealth and promotion in that worldly kingdom, which as he believed the Messiah was about to set up. The failure of his hopes drove him to apostasy and ruin. Both Balaam and Judas had received great light, enjoyed special privilege, and a single cherished sin poisoned the entire character and cause their destruction. I know there's more examples than just this, but um, prosperity preaching, people who claim to be ministers of the Lord, and, and yet not only their life, but what they teach people is sort of in opposition to each other, don't you think? It's sort of an oxymoron, so to speak. Um, the final paragraph. It is a perilous thing to allow an unchristian trait to live in the heart. One cherished sin will, little by little, debase the character, bringing all its nobler powers into subjection to the evil desire. The removal of one safeguard from the conscience, the indulgence of one evil habit, one neglect of the high claims of duty, breaks down the defenses of the soul and opens the way for Satan to come in and lead us astray. Did you get that? Removal of one safeguard from the conscience, indulgence of one evil habit, one neglect of a high claim of duty, opens the way for Satan to come in and lead us astray. We don't want to do that. The only safe course is to let our prayers go forth daily from a sincere heart as did David. Hold up my goings and my paths that my footsteps slip not. 
So, the doctrine of Balaam, covetousness, whilst trying to claim the blessing of God. True to God in the beginning, um, Pergamos was true to God in the beginning, excuse me, Numbers 22, 18. Um... And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. So he was true to God in the beginning, but he loved the wages of unrighteousness. Let's read Second Peter chapter 2, 14 and 15. having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart that have exercised with covetous practices cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam loved wages of unrighteousness. God gave him a free choice. Numbers 22:20. 20. And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the man come to call thee, rise up and go with him. But yet the word which I shall say, I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. God gave him a free choice. But his way was perverse. Numbers 22, 32. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine asties three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. So Balaam was perverse. Balaam, one second here. Okay. Balaam was reproved, 2 Peter 2.16. Second Peter, let me see if I'm in the right place. Second Peter, oh, I'm in First Peter. No wonder it looked weird. Okay, Second Peter two sixteen, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Okay, he was reproved through the donkey, and then the angel. He united Baal or sun worship with the worship of the true God, didn't he? Okay, so we're now we're getting down to the key issue. What was the doctrine of Balaam? He united sun worship with the worship of the true God. Let's go to Numbers 23, 1 to 3. And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, prepare me here seven oxen and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered on every altar a bullock and a ram. And Balaam said unto Balak, Stand by thy burnt offerings, and I will go, peradventure the Lord will come to meet me, Whatsoever he showed me, I will tell thee. And he went to a high place. He went to a high place, which was where they had their um, pagan worship. So he united those. He, um, hmm. What was he thinking? Second Peter 2, okay. 
Uh, okay, numbers 23, 1 to 3. Um, okay, I already read that. He was hired to work against God's people. Wow. I wonder. Let's see what this says. Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 4. 23. 3 and 4. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor of Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. They united with the king to over he united with the king to overthrow the people of God. And God said that they would not be able to become part of the people of God. The tenth generation. Let's go to Revelation two, verse fourteen. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. Hmm. So he united with the king to overthrow the people of God. There are people today who do that, though they don't realize that's what they're doing. As I mentioned earlier about prosperity preachers. Honor and position was offered to him. Numbers twenty-two seventeen. Yeah, they did um, offer Balaam. For I will promote thee unto very great honor, and I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. Balaam died a soothsayer, fighting against the people of God. Joshua thirteen twenty two. Joshua chapter 13, verse 22. Balaam also the son of Beor, the soothsayer, did the children of Israel slay with the sword among them that were slain by them. Yes, he was slain. Balaam's history is a parallel history with the church from about 322 to 538 A.D., Pergamos. The church entered this period a pure church, but it united with the state. It substituted the venerable day of the sun for the true Sabbath. And at the end, it was persecuting the people of God. Heathen customs were introduced into the church under the garb of Christianity. Remember the course of Balaam. Micah 6, verse 5. O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittimah to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. A woe was pronounced upon all who follow the errors. We're told to remember him, aren't we? And a woe was pronounced upon all who follow the errors of Balaam. In Jude, verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, 
and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Cory. There we have it. Let me just uh, try to summarize this really quickly, what we've learned about Pergamos. The time of Pergamos was from 323 A.D. to 538. It means height or elevation. Their leading sin was the doctrine of, doctrine of Balaam. There was a brief study of the doctrine and character of Balaam that we read about, the story of Balaam. He was true to God in the beginning, but he loved the wages of unrighteousness. God gave him a free choice. His way was perverse. Balaam was reproved. So he united Baal or sun worship with the worship of the true God by going to the high places and having altars to God set up and also going to the high places. That final time he didn't, though, did he? He was hired to work against God's people. He united with the king to overthrow the people of God. Honor and position were offered him. He died a soothsayer fighting against the people of God. His history is a peril of history with the Pergamos church from 323 to 538 because the church entered this period a pure church. But during this period, it was united with the state and it substituted the venerable day of the sun or Sunday for the true Sabbath. And at the end, when he was persecuting the people of God, the per at the end of Pergamus's period, they were persecuting God's people. The heathen customs were introduced into the church under the garb of Christianity. So we are to remember the course of Balaam, and a woe was pronounced upon all who followed his errors. Let's close with prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for, for Pergamos, for the witness that they leave for us. Help us, Lord, to be true to you and to not look to money as a savior. You are our savior. Help us to be rather die from poverty than to be without your presence. I pray for those who are here with me this morning that they will be convicted as well to follow with me, me, my brothers and sisters, all together in your church, your family. Be faithful to Jesus to the end. In your name we pray. Amen. Tomorrow morning, Thyatira. I'll see you in the morning.